The authors featured on today's program do not provide medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment, nor do they recommend any specific tests, medical professionals, products, procedures, or opinions in the book. Reliance on any information provided is solely at your own risk. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERA Arlington 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. Navigating the healthcare system can be one of the most difficult and complicated journeys older adults and their families may face. Knowing what to expect when moving through the healthcare system and interacting with healthcare professionals requires knowledge confidence, and the ability to communicate effectively. Today, my guests are Dr. Colette Edwards and Charlene Rothkoff, co-authors of a book called Navigating Your Healthcare Journey, Lessons Learned to Get the Care You Need and Deserve. They will provide details about how the healthcare system works, who the players are, and how to take charge of your own health. They'll also discuss the importance of maintaining a healthy lifestyle and what to know when dealing with the diagnosis and treatment of an illness. So welcome, Dr. Edwards and Charlene, and thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Cheryl. Uh, We really appreciate the opportunity to speak to your listeners and be part of your podcast. All right. Well, Charlene, I'm going to start with you. Give us an overview. Why should older adults learn how to navigate their healthcare journey. And along with that, talk about how their care partners and family members can help in this process. Well, as you know, uh, Cheryl, as we age, we have more frequent encounters with the healthcare system, both as a patient and as caregivers. Um, My experience started when I was in my mid-50s. I was a busy executive, and I thought I knew how the healthcare system worked. But it wasn't until I experienced a seizure, uh, which uh, when a brain tumor was discovered, that I found out the hard way how difficult it can be to navigate the system. I had a total of five surgeries. I won't go into the details, but I understood that um, when there are multiple practitioners involved and a number of complications, I had to be my own self-advocate. And... I found that my the help of and support of my family and my friends uh, were lifesavers. They they came to my house and stayed with me. They took me to office visits um, with the doctor. They delivered food. I, I'll tell you, they were they were real lifesavers for me, and it was so important. But I decided after some reflections to write about my experience, and then I asked Colette if she would collaborate with me. We were both uh, graduates of the health and wellness coaching program at the Maryland University of Integrative Health, where we, um, and we worked together. Actually, Cheryl, we had a session that we taught together called the Art and Science of Healthy Aging. And we collaborated on some training sessions. And so once I started 
talking to other people about my story, they started sharing your, our, their stories and that formed the basis of this book. And Colette and I collaborated on the writing of it during the pandemic. So each, of, each chapter includes a real life patient story, some lessons learned, facts about what you need to know, what you can do right now, and then some resources to go along with each chapter. So we're, we're really happy to share it with everyone. It sounds like as uh, this process occurred for you and probably for our listeners who might be having a similar experience, the role of the care partners and the family members was really important. Exactly. Most of the family and friends, they send their thoughts and prayers and they send flowers and cards, but they really want to help. And sometimes they don't know how to help. And so as patients and caregivers, we need to ask for what we, we need, whether it's, um, you know, coming just to visit or whether to um, help us with driving or helping with picking up things from the store. I think that it's really important as, as family members and friends to, to be part of the healthcare recovery process. Okay. Well, Dr. Edwards, as a physician, give us your perspective. Uh, if an individual is struggling with a health condition, exactly what does it mean for that individual to take charge of their health? So from my perspective, it means several things. And I think this is one of the one of the most important messages that I would want to impart this morning in terms of the power that people have that they often don't recognize, particularly when they are ill or frightened, not sure what's going on, that getting prepared, if you will, for whatever may come in advance of something bad happening, it will pay for itself um, when you find yourself in that instance. So it is really important for people to take the time to actively engage and not be passive in the process. And I think that people are getting better at that over time, but there are some people whose personality lends itself to that quite naturally and others who uh, feel that whoever is providing the care knows best for them. That may or may not be true. And so it's important to not step away from it and just go along with what you're being told, but to actively engage. And as Charlene had said, to advocate for yourself and also know what your rights are and make sure that you know all your options. And it's important to know that you may indeed pay, uh, play a much larger role in the coordination of your care, as Charlene found out, than one would want to be the case. But be that as it may, uh, you may find yourself in that role. The, your caregiver or your family may find themselves in that role. And it's important to uh, step up to the plate um, important for you to know your family history, if possible, risk factors that you may have for chronic conditions or cancer, uh, to know what preventive care you need to have based on your sex, based on your age, based on your past medical history, your family history, to know about an underlying medical condition yourself and not be totally reliant on what you may or may not be told 
um, from the system. Uh, I think it's very important for people to find a PCP, if at all possible, that they really feel comfortable with, that they can tell that person everything and someone who respects them, respects their culture and takes that into uh, that context when making recommendations. Um, It's important to ask questions and keep asking those questions until you understand the answers and to really pay attention to your gut feeling. So if something seems like it's very off, not hanging together, that might well be the case. Uh, You may not be uh, correct, but in my personal experience that that typically you are not off base or it means that you misunderstood or misinterpreted something uh, that was said to you, particularly if you are in pain or you're afraid of what you might be told. And I guess what I would say that I would wish in terms of taking charge and advocating uh, is the example of parents with a child who have a rare or life-threatening condition And very rapidly, they get up to speed and whatever fears or reservations they may have, they put those things aside because they're advocating for their child and they may not do it for themselves, but they they definitely do when it comes to their child. So they're doing the research. They're making sure they understand what the options are. They're asking questions to make sure they understand. And they are fighting for their child to have the best opportunity for complete recovery. So we know it can be done just in that example alone. And it's something that needs to be done, in my opinion, not just in a situation like that, but all of the time, particularly in a system that is complicated, that's fragmented, and it's becoming more complex every day. And along that line, then, you mentioned a bit about preventive care. And Charlene, I just wanted to get back to you. And you mentioned also, Dr. Edwards, about a primary care provider. Talk a little bit more about preventive care, not only, say, with a primary care provider as to regular checkups to make sure you are doing okay. I'm thinking also of dental health and maybe daily dental hygiene. Talk a little bit more about that and why that's important as far as taking charge of your health. Sure. Uh, One of the most important things you can do is to establish a relationship with a primary care provider who knows you and knows your medical history and your family history before you get sick. Because once you get sick, you want to know who to call. And that primary care physician who knows you and knows your history, as Colette had mentioned, can provide the regular checkups can keep track of your vital signs and monitor any changes in them over time. Um, We have a story in the book about uh, someone delaying um, their annual visit or their annual checkup, and it creates problems and complications down the road. Um, A primary care physician can also recommend and track any vaccinations or inoculations like annual flu shots. Um, They can monitor the recommended health screenings, such as colonoscopies, mammograms, and so on. They can also uh, refer you to a specialist when needed and coordinate your care if there are multiple providers involved. 
I just recently contacted my primary care physician to help me get an appointment with a dermatologist when the next available appointment wasn't until three months away and he was able to get me in uh, sooner than that. Uh, you mentioned dental visits. I don't want people to forget uh, that having a, uh, a dentist and having regular dental visits is at just as important, if not <laughs> for a lot of respects. And we often um, put that off. There's, there's a fear of a dentist. My, by the way, my husband's a dentist and he gave me some in input for this. Um, regular dental visits are important, not just to detect any tooth related issues, even if they're asymptomatic, but also for periodontal problems, which include inflammation of the gums and possible bone loss. With any infections or chronic inflammation in the mouth, if they're not addressed and they continue, the bacteria, I don't know if your viewers know this, can get into your bloodstream and can create health issues in your body, including heart disease, stroke, a greater difficulty managing diabetes. So regular dental visits are also important to check for abnormalities in the soft tissue inside your cheeks, your lips, the palate. That could be indicators of oral cancer. Um, my husband was telling me cysts on wisdom teeth can be destructive to the integrity of the jaw and can harbor cancer. In fact, more prevalent in older adults are root caries or decay in the roots that can be more difficult to treat and may lead to bone loss. So good dental hygiene, just like good maintaining your regular health, uh, brushing and flossing twice a day. Um, if you have an electric toothbrush, they're good. Many dentists recommend a water pick to clean, uh, hard to clean places. And there are also some good oral rinses out there. I also want to make sure, just like with your health medical insurance, you want to check your dental insurance and see what they cover because dental insurance has some limits or annual caps, and they may not cover some of the more expensive restorations and treatment. In addition to what we're talking about in terms of these uh, regular visits with primary care docs and also dentists, Dr. Edwards, I wanted to, to return to you. You talked about taking charge of your health and there's also a term that you use in your book called health literacy. So I'd like to learn a little bit more about that. And specifically, you talked about a couple of things that I just wanted to bring up, uh, health benefits, privacy rights, personal advocacy, asking for help. Talk a little bit more about each of those and what that means and why that's important. Sure. And I view actually being health literate as a preventive care measure. And that really is referring to the degree to which you're able to find, understand, and use information uh, to then make decisions about services and to take action. And it really means being as grounded as you can be and being assertive curious um, and persistent enough to get the information that you need in a way that you understand it so that you are in the best position to make an informed decision, whether it's about a procedure or 
how to best manage a condition when there are a multitude of options. With regard to all the other areas that you spoke about, particularly health benefits and privacy rights, it's very common for patients to not know the details of their benefits, particularly in a situation. So you are still working, you are on an employer plan, you at the time of enrollment for the next year are feeling fine. It's very common and understandable that you aren't necessarily looking at all the nooks and crannies of what is going to be covered. Those documents are long and may not be easily understood, but you definitely want to know enough to really make an informed decision and to take advantage of tools that may be available to you to help you pick the right plan based on what has happened in the past and what you anticipate in the future. Um, If you are not clear about something, it's important to ask about that to make the best decision. And then when it comes to something like Medicare and then having supplemental insurance, understanding what that relationship is and Medicare taking the lead and whether or not the supplemental plan will fill in the gaps depending upon the plan that you have chosen. Um, I would encourage people to take advantage of their appeal rights and not just assume that if they appeal that the system is so rigged that nothing will change because the reality of the situation is that Many, many, many people don't appeal, and when they do appeal uh, and pulling together uh, all the information that is available, that uh, it is often the case, a high percentage of the time, that actually a decision may be changed because it's often the case that when something has been denied, not all the information is submitted for review. So to definitely take the extra effort to appeal and that decision might get reversed. It's also important to know what your responsibility is with regard to paying for services so that you aren't caught off guard and find yourself with a whopping bill, particularly in a situation where that could have been avoided. important to know what your privacy rights are, and that's typically referred to as HIPAA. Um, Important to know that you have the right to be treated in a respectful manner and without discrimination uh, with regard to factors such as your sex or your religious beliefs. And then to read the fine print when you are giving informed consent, because there may be items in there that you have the opportunity to cross out um, and not uh, approve when it comes to informed consent. So, for example, it's not uncommon to have an informed consent, particularly if you are in a teaching hospital, about photos, etc. So, it's that's common to find just embedded as standard operating procedure. But those are things that you typically can cross out in initial, so that if that's something you don't want it doesn't happen. And then I would say it also extends to websites when you're doing a search that 
pay attention to when that pop-up comes about the cookies and for all the things that you that are not labeled as absolutely necessary, my recommendation would definitely be to make it clear that you don't want to be followed around uh, websites and to click on that information and take advantage of that every time because there's a lot that can be embedded in the fine print. And since you've been talking so much, I wanted to get one more question in before our break, and that is uh, to Charlene. You've been talking about prevention. Talk a little bit more about uh, being proactive and maintaining a healthy lifestyle, again, to prevent getting into the health system to begin with. But can you mention a few practices that would be fall under the label of healthy lifestyle? Sure. Um as probably many of your viewers know, many chronic conditions are lifestyle related. Uh, some of the most prevalent conditions of heart disease, stroke, diabetes, cancer, obesity are often linked to our lifestyle. And in fact, uh, during the pandemic, those people who had these chronic conditions or comp- and or compromised immune systems were actually the most severely impacted. So many of these lifestyle items you've seen, a lot's been written about them, but let me just go through a a, a quick list. Um, The first one is obviously smoking. We all know about the dangers of smoking and many people have already quit. They understand how it links to lung cancer and emphysema, COPD and so on. Um, Our diets are so important and um, we need to all uh, reduce our addiction to sugar and processed foods. Um, if we can eat organic and increase our fiber, drinking more water, I always have to remind myself to do that. Um, the Mediterranean diet, for example, is one in, that you may have read about, includes a lot of plants and vegetables, whole grains and nuts, olive oil instead of butter and margarine, and oily fish such as salmon and sardines are recommended. Um, look, we're all tempted by a lot of these foods and and it's really a question of moderation. So many co- places in this country are what they call food deserts or food swamps, food deserts where they can't find any fresh fruits and vegetables or food swamps where there's only uh, fast food restaurants. So along with our diet, it's important to minimize the use of alcohol. Um, the standard recommendation was one drink for women and two drinks per day for men. Uh, but recent studies have actually come out that shows even small amounts of alcohol aren't that healthy. So we recommend just being judicious about the use of alcohol and practice moderation. Uh, exercise, of course, we've all read about that. Regular exercise, both aerobic and muscle strengthening are important as we get older to keep our bones strong and protect our mobility, Uh, but be sure to check with your doctor before starting any exercise routine. Uh, Sleep is one. (laughs) It's harder as we get, as we age to get the recommended seven to eight hours of sleep. And because of a number of things could be um, part of uh, aches and pains. It could be part of our medication, but poor sleep uh, impacts our health in many ways because it's the time when our body heals itself. 
it cleanses the toxins from the from the brain, and it also uh, it boosts our immune system. It also can affect our ability to lose weight. Uh, the other last piece I want is stress. Uh, we have stress in our lives all the time, but if we can uh, in, uh, help reduce that stress and limit the um, uh, uh, amount of stress or handle stress in, more, in better ways, either talking to someone, breathe, deep breathing, yoga, volunteering. I know Colette has published some information on that subject, but there's one other thing that can help reduce stress as well, and that is building our socializing with others and building our relationships. You know, loneliness is very detrimental to one's health, and it's like smoking 15 uh, cigarettes a day, believe it or not. And so being with others, being with the community is important to helping us stay healthy. Okay. Well, we're going to take a short break right now in case you tuned in late. We're talking about navigating your healthcare journey, and we are pleased to have the authors of a book called Navigating the Healthcare Journey, Lessons Learned to Get the Care You Need and Deserve. We're talking with Dr. Colette Edwards and Charlene Rothkoff. And you are listening to WERA Arlington 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. The authors featured on today's program do not provide medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment, nor do they recommend any specific tests, medical professionals, products, procedures, or opinions in the book. Reliance on any information provided is solely at your own risk. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Welcome back. We're talking with Dr. Colette Edwards and Charlene Rothkoff, co-authors of a book called Navigating Your Healthcare Journey. And we talked a lot about prevention and uh, taking charge of your healthcare yourself, but I want to get into some of the aspects of what happens when we start dealing with the healthcare system. And so, Dr. Edwards, I'm going to start with you. Why is it important to know the role of, of various types of healthcare practitioners? What what do we need to know? And and I think as part of that question, if you could talk about how the primary care physician might be able to help and how we can choose the, the correct specialist, because there are so many out there today. So knowing the different types and the conditions they address would be helpful in terms of knowing where to start and who you uh, possibly should be seen and who should be involved in your care, particularly in a situation that's complicated or one where the diagnosis or the treatment um, aren't clear. There is also overlap between different specialist types depending upon what's going on. So an example I will give you from uh, practice as a gastroenterologist would be a patient presenting with a hoarse voice, and they might see an ENT because it could, for example, be vocal cord polyps, or they might see or need to see a gastroenterologist because it could be related to very severe reflux. It's also important to know the different types of specialists when you're seeking a second opinion. And because care often revolves a a group of people, it's important to know who does what and who's in the best position 
um, to provide the answers. With regard to your PCP, you and your PCP as a team, I would say, should serve as the quarterback. Your PCP can be very helpful in guiding you and making referrals to the uh, best type of specialist um, based on what's going on with you, your past medical history, et cetera. And Charlene, as you're establishing contact and a relationship with these physicians that Dr. Edwards talked about, uh, you mentioned in your book about a physician partnership. What, what exactly does that mean? Is there something to do with remembering what kind of experience you have in terms of your doctor's office and patient portals and making sure you get as much information? What, what do our listeners need to know? There's a very famous quote, Cheryl, that by Sir William Osler, the He's known as the father of modern medicine. And he says, the good physician treats the disease. The great physician treats the patient who has the disease. That is, you want the, the provider to take the time to get to know you, understand what's important to you. And with any partnership, whether it's business or personal, it's based on mutual trust and respect. You know, I have a physician that I love who says we're partners in your healthcare, and you're the senior partner. He understands that I know my body best and I know what's going to work because what might work for one person won't work for another. And at the end of the session, he says, what else do I need to know about you in order to provide the best possible care? Um, so the communication with the physician is so important. Um, I always make a, uh, suggest that you make a list of questions in advance of the, the appointment and come prepared to um, take notes if you can, because many times you forget what the doctor said. Sometimes you have to bring a friend or a family member with you to help take notes if that's possible. Um, I also uh, understand that a lot of uh, physicians and hospital systems have different portals. And so if you go into the, many times they will contact you through the portal and want you to enter all the information about your medications you're on, your supplements, they want to communicate with you through the portal. Um, they, any kind of office visit summaries or doctor's orders or lab results will come through the portal. So that's their way of automating it. I often send, if I have a non-urgent question to a doctor, I'll go through the portal, but sometimes they don't answer it within 24 or 48 hours. If it's an urgent question, I will call. The biggest problem with portal, Cheryl, is obviously they're all different. They have different passwords that you have to remember, and they don't intercept. They don't talk to one another. So if you're seeing one specialist may not, uh, through a portal, they may not have the same information if you see someone else. Um, so you have to make sure you relay that information carefully from one uh, provider to another. There's also been some recent uh, news articles about some cybersecurity incidents related to some portals, but I think the information is pretty much protected as much as it can be. But um, make sure that you know how to use it. Get help if you don't know how. And Charlene, another re physician-related question, and I heard Dr. Edwards mention that, but did you want to talk a little bit more about second opinion? People kind of worry about that sometimes as to whether that's a good idea. What would you tell us? I think it's a very good idea if after a reasonable period of time, 
you haven't gotten better, you're suspicious maybe of a diagnosis and you want to confirm a diagnosis, or even whether a particular procedure is even needed. Um, you know, there's some research from Mayo Clinic that says around 20% of people who sought a second opinion, they actually got a different diagnosis from the first one, and about two-thirds actually received a refined or a redefined diagnosis. So I think if you're going to ask for a second opinion, don't be intimidated. Be direct and unemotional as possible. Um, and don't worry if you're, you're not going to offend the doctor. Um, I did have someone who said to me when I asked for a second opinion, uh, said to me, there can only be one captain of this ship. Well, I left that office and never came back. But uh, what I realized was you have to be what I say, politely assertive and say, this is a serious diagnosis and I'd like to get a second opinion to make sure we're on the right track. I can come back to you once I'm able to confirm that. And if you do go get a second opinion, be sure you bring all the necessary um, test results, the previous diagnosis and any treatment plans. And then taking it even one more step, uh, Charlene, what would be the best approach if turns out that the physician has made a mistake in terms of your diagnosis or treatment. What then? You know, we're all infallible, Cheryl. This medicine is both an art and a science, and what may work for one patient doesn't always work for another. And so a physician might miss a diagnosis or delay ordering a procedure. So it's important for us, again, to speak up about all of our symptoms, about the type of pain, how long it's been, and advocate for ourselves. There's a term called medical gaslighting, where sometimes doctors don't take you seriously or they think it's all in your head. Um, after my brain surgery, one of the doctors said, um, oh, it can't be a problem. Go home, relax, and take a warm bath. And I had to go somewhere else to, to get it straightened out. Um, so communication, being persistent, be aware of all your options. And in the case of medication, know what um, the drugs are, what if you're allergic or sensitivities, you have to make sure you share that. Um, everything's not going to solve a problem 100% of the time. And in, in you may have to be uh, persistent and go back and say, it's not working. I want to call it to your attention immediately. Get a second opinion. If you find that someone really uh, is ne negligent and you're a victim of medical error, then you can have a couple of options. You can talk to the quality department in the, in the hospital, even the hospital CEO. I wrote a long letter to the hosp hospital president. Um, you can check to see in your insurance company if they will file an appeal on your behalf. And as a last resort, if you really have a lot of evidence, there may there's certainly medical malpractice attorneys who could be contacted, but that would be a last resort. Okay. Well, Dr. Edwards, I wanted to get back with you. We've been now, uh, Charlene already mentioned about hospitalization, and I think that can be really complicated, especially if someone has a serious illness and or they're in the hospital for a long time. What are recommend, recommended ways to coordinate one's own health care with so many different specialties being involved and, and usually the primary care physician, not so much? What do you recommend for patients to know? 
So I would reiterate the importance of not assuming that everyone knows what the rest of the people involved in your care are doing and not assume that they're all getting together to have a conversation about next steps. Charlene had mentioned something that I think is very important with regard to taking notes and uh, particularly when you're in the hospital, if you're in a position to have a friend or family member to take notes, uh, that obviously is going to be helpful because you may not be in the best position to do so, particularly depending upon what medication you are on. But you may find yourself being the one to tell you know, each person coming in the room who has said what and what their recommendations are at a given point in time. Uh, when the next set of uh, people come in, they may or may not have seen the chart from the notes that the last person left. And it's important for you to make sure that everyone knows those really important things about what others are doing and any questions you have about how those two things may relate or don't relate, or particularly in a situation where the recommendations may be in conflict. In the case of an inpatient stay or inpatient rehab, very important to review medications afterwards and make sure that you have follow-up appointments, home health services scheduled, um, to make sure that you don't find yourself on medications that now have drug-drug interactions, are treating the same uh, condition, and you don't need to be on both, et cetera. But don't assume that uh, everyone knows what others are doing, and you may be the one person who knows the the biggest picture, particularly in the hospital where your PCP uh, may not have, uh, may not even be coming into the hospital to see you because things have changed so much in the way care is delivered these days. And also then, if after hospitalization, Dr. Edwards, is it helpful to know about different community healthcare settings that uh, might be where a patient ends up? You mentioned rehab already, but I'm thinking maybe long-term care or some other facility. Is it important to know about those places as well? Absolutely. You, you want to find yourself at the right level of care for your problem at a given point in time. And that's helpful in avoiding unnecessarily delays, complications, or even what you end up paying out of pocket. So for example, you don't want to be in the emergency room being exposed to things like COVID. You know, the cases are on the rise again when it's something that could have been handled virtually with your PCP or even at home. And at the other end of the spectrum, if you're having severe chest pain, don't try to tough it out at home and say that it's, you know, uh, con yourself into thinking that it may be reflux as you're having uh, a heart attack. It's also important to know and to ask, particularly if you have Medicare coverage, how your stay when you're in, physically in an ER setting is being coded. So if it is being coded as an observation, that may have a lot of cost implications versus if it's coded as an inpatient stay, if you have a long stay in the emergency room. Okay. Well, this is very helpful in terms of now where a patient is and uh, what the possibilities are. So Charlene, I wanted to get back to you about the the person himself or herself. And let's talk a little bit more about maintaining emotional health 
Why is that necessary? And are there certain healing methods and therapies that are available to um, address that issue? You know, when you're going through a, a serious health condition, particularly if there's multiple procedures, it's natural to become anxious and scared. Uh, you, you're in an environment that generally you're out of your element, and there's lots of strange uh, equipment, uh, uncomfortable procedures, perhaps like an MRI machine, and you're unsure of what's going to happen next. Um, some people have mentioned that it's like going through PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, because they're so nervous and anxious. Um, there's a link between your emotional health and your physical health. And it's very important not to feel like you have to tough it out. Um, one thing that helped me when I was in the hospital was I tried to talk with the nurses and try to get know their names and how long they worked there because they're so helpful and can really make your stay very, very comfortable. And of course, the support of family and, family and friends is also important. Uh, knowing they care about you and your well-being. But there are several uh, healing methods and therapies that are out available if people take advantage of them. Some are to the traditional ones of talking with a psychologist or a behavioral health professional or a psychiatrist who can be helpful in reducing your stress. There also, um, there's something called tapping that I used uh, or emotional freedom technique that I used after multiple surgeries to help me uh, relax. There was also um, something called zero balancing with a trained practitioner. It's with light pressure points on the body to release certain tension and stress. There are also other therapies, music, art therapy, dance therapy. Um, you know, a lot of hospitals have service dogs that come in to help reduce the stress. And people, I even have friends that have uh, equine assisted therapy where they use horses to help particularly with, with children. Um, there's a lot of body of work around mindfulness and being aware of the present moment and meditation. And of course, don't forget about prayers and, and your faith-based uh, measures that can help you get through difficult health issues. And Dr. Edwards, for not only the emotional health, but oftentimes it can lead to mental illness, which I think is is sometimes difficult to treat, especially amongst uh, older adults. And there are a lot of factors that might be present. Help us understand a little bit more about that, why it's so difficult, and 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 perhaps you could go into signs and symptoms of mental illness and what treatment. Uh, options are available, especially for older adults? So I think part of the difficulty is related to the stigma, which I would say has very much decreased, but is still very present, particularly for conditions like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. Uh, the most common mental health conditions when it comes to older adults um, are depression, anxiety, and cognitive impairment, and dementia. And in fact, uh, information just came out last week that in 2022, the uh, rate of suicide in patients who were 45 to 64 increased almost 7%. And if you were over 65, uh, almost 8%. Um, 
and that 20% of those who are age 55 or older will have a mental health condition at um, one point uh, or another. As you get older, there are changes that aging can bring that can leave you more isolated or can um, actually impact your physical health, which then can impact your mental health. Some of the symptoms people may find or that, you know, their mood, their energy level, their appetite has changed. They have problems sleeping either too much or too little. They start to self-medicate with alcohol. Uh, Alcohol use among older adults is on the rise. Um, And that uh, they are feeling sad, they're feeling hopeless, um, are just a few of the symptoms. With regard to treatment, I'm not going to go into anything specific except to say that it is very, very important to seek help, to recognize that many conditions are highly treatable. For example, a depression. Um, many conditions may not even require medication. So in some people, exercise is proven to be as helpful in treating depression as medication, for example, and that the number of treatment options in the mental health arena is increasing. So uh, don't sit and not seek help. The faster you seek help, and uh, not feel any shame about it, the faster you'll be able to get the help you need and feel better. Dr. Edwards, I also wanted to talk about health disparities. You you devote a whole chapter uh, in your book about health disparities. Explain what some of those health disparities might be and if an older adult is experiencing or notices that that seems to be the case, how can they be addressed? So the the first thing to know is, to, you know, what health disparities are and what may be, what uh, situations where it may be more applicable. And so they are dis- differences in in the burden of disease that a person or community of people experiences, how they're treated, uh, when they're in the healthcare system, whether or not they have access uh, to uh, quality healthcare. Uh, some of the causes uh, in the system may be related to things like sexism, bias, racism, uh, people who have negative feelings about the LGBTQ plus community, about those with disabilities, uh, even with regard to older adults, people making assumptions that uh, uh, that a person won't be able to handle a certain treatment regimen, um, little things like talking to the person who is with you as opposed to talking to you when you're perfectly capable of answering the questions and you know best. Other contributory factors have to do with medical training and then for example, focus and funding in medical and scientific research, where a lot of the focus has been on men versus women and more funding going to conditions that are more common in men than those that are uh, specific to women. But to be aware so that you are on the lookout and make sure that you are taking charge of your health care to help avoid any of the potential repercussions. And I also wanted to ask another question that's, again, related to uh, older adults, Dr. Edwards, and that's about the insurance policies. Uh, What do older adults need to know about 
the insurance that they have, whether it's Medicare or long-term care insurance, uh, perhaps some other policy that they had that that was connected with former employment. What should uh, older adults and their families know about insurance? Well, once you get older, it becomes an alphabet soup. So, you know, I will start off with Medicare in terms of knowing when you are eligible to um, apply for Medicare or what the penalties may be if you wait to apply for Medicare. Uh, You may also qualify for Medicaid. There's a category called dual eligibles, depending upon your particular situation. Uh, One thing that I would say is to really think about getting long-term care insurance if it's possible uh, long before you think you need it and when it may become very cost prohibitive. And then with regard to Medicare, the different parts, part A, inpatient, part B, outpatient, part C is something called Medicare Advantage and part D being pharmacy. Um, And also think about dental and vision, Uh, particularly for example, does a plan cover um, hearing aids because hearing impairment has been linked to uh, increased risk of dementia, for example. And then if you're still working, what does your commercial health plan cover? And you may be eligible for uh, an ACA plan. But really to uh, make sure that you are aware of the different types and what you need based on your particular uh, situation and what your pocketbook can afford. Good to know all that information. So thank you, Dr. Edwards. Charlene, I wanted to get back to you. There was one chapter also in your book about what older consumers should know about planning and preparing for end of life. I guess it wasn't just older consumers. Everybody should be thinking about that. But what can you tell us about that particular aspect of one's health care? Yes, uh, I personally had to go through this. And the key is to be prepared as much as you can before you or your loved one becomes ill. Uh, Certainly uh, creating a will or updating your will uh, so that it's clear what you want to happen with you and your possessions. Uh, This can be done with an estate attorney or there are even some online resources. You also need to have an advanced directive uh, which spells out your wishes regarding your medical care should you become incapacitated or unable to decide on your own. Uh, this would include who, who, can, who do you designate to make decisions on your behalf if you're unable, uh, like a DNR, do not resuscitate order if you want to be kept on life support or not uh, artificially. Or you may want to donate some organs upon your death. Uh, Colette mentioned long-term care, which is important, particularly when you're younger because assisted living and senior facilities and in-home care can be very expensive. Uh, coordinating your health care at the end of life is so important because generally there's multiple medications and multiple specialists involved. Uh, two other features, uh, there's both palliative care, which is not necessarily limited to the end of life, is a way of, of providing relief from pain and managing the side effects of treatments and maintaining the quality of life. And there are some very good palliative care resources out there. And then at the very end, there's hospice care, which is end-of-life care that you bring in when death is imminent and no further treatment can be done just to keep the patient comfortable and treated with dignity with all their loved ones. 
All right. Well, we're just about out out of time. Dr. Edwards, you get the last question here. Information again about your book and any other information you want to give about navigating one's healthcare journey. Besides our book, and if you want to get more information about it, you can go to uh, navigatingyourhealthcarejourney.com. We have a website. Other uh, resources I would mention would be your health plan. A lot of people don't think about that, but there are services, for example, care management, where you can get help from your health plan in terms of navigating the system and making things as uh, cost cost efficient as possible. I do think that AARP does put out great content for things for you to be paying attention to, uh, things you may not think of, uh, questions to ask. Then there are organizations like the Area Agencies on Aging, the National Council on Aging, the CDC, um, a government agency called the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality that has lots of different resources that can be helpful so that in any given setting, you are as educated as possible, aware of what uh, could go wrong and be set up to uh, ask the right questions to get the care that you need and deserve um, as quickly and efficiently and in as high quality away as possible. And then of course, Medicare.gov. All right. Well, I want to thank Dr. Colette Edwards and Charlene Rothkoff, co-authors of a book called Navigating Your Healthcare Journey, Lessons Learned to Get the Care You Need and Deserve. Thank you both for joining me today. Thank you, Cheryl. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Okay. And to learn more about Aging Matters, of course, you can visit our website, which is agingmattersonline.com. And of course, at this site, you can access all of our Aging Matters radio and TV show content and listen to our Aging Matters podcasts on Apple and Spotify. Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Mouth Media. And to learn more about that company, log on to inkmouthmedia.com. Thank you for listening to Aging Matters today. And remember, as always, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week.